Okay, all the viewers on Diplomacy Direct, uh, most welcome. Uh, today we uh, have another exciting session with Professor Rick Fisher. Uh, basically, uh, today we have uh, a, a, a lingering topic over China again. And today we are going to look at it from a very different perspective. So Chinese President Xi Jinping says, uh, and I quote, uh, with more than 5,000 years of civilized history, uh, the Chinese nation created a brilliant Chinese civilization, made outstanding contributions to mankind and became a great nation of the world. CCP is 100 and the power projection knows no bounds. Uh, today, again, uh, Dr. Prof uh, Professor Fisher uh, will take us through the entire PLA's role in CCP power progression and the multi-angled view into China's uh, play for its hegemony. So welcome uh, Professor Fisher to Diplomacy Direct once again. Pipple, thank you for having me uh, join your program once again. Great. So Professor Fisher, let's touch base upon these factors uh, one by one. So China's military strategy built an influence of CCP over PLA and its role in protecting China's uh, evolving national and political uh, security interests and CCP's propaganda. Uh, can you throw some light on it, please? Yes. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, in China has absolute uh, authority. Uh, it, it exists largely to sustain and increase its power. Uh, that uh, really is the main and uh, principal product of the Chinese Communist Party is power for the party and securing that power uh, and vanquishing its enemies mm -hmm. and becoming the principal power on earth and just as important, the earth moon system. Mm -hmm. uh, the party since Tiananmen, I would argue, has come to the conclusion that due to the uh, uh, simple osmosis of foreign influences over the Chinese people during the 1980s, which the party had uh, no control over, uh, uh, leading to the Tiananmen incident, really the most uh, uh, fundamental challenge, existential challenge that the party has faced in its history. After quashing, after suppressing, violently suppressing uh, this uh, protest really, not an uprising, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the party decided that it had to exercise increasing control over the rest of the world in order to stifle the kinds of influences from uh, helping the Chinese people to decide that they could do without the Chinese Communist Party dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So what we, are, what we have witnessed over the last 40 years 
has, has been the Chinese Communist Party's program of building up its economic, political, and military power in order to extend its influence increasingly in all of those realms around the world and to eventually not just be able to project military power uh, uh, as, as precisely and as, as much as it chooses, but to combine that with the kind of economic and political power or coercion, if you will, that, uh, that might avoid the need to deploy ships or, 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 or uh, brigades of troops, but nonetheless, uh, be able to approach every country on the earth, make an inventory of that country, decide who is and who is not their friends, and to make sure that friends rise to positions of power versus enemies so that the process of, of control, integration of, of economic ambitions and plans, political ambitions and plans, all contribute to the power position and to the strength of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, there's, there's a kind of a timeline uh, to, to produce this overall global power and effect, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that is by the middle of the century. By the middle of this century, China wants to be, wants to have the most powerful array of economic levers, political levers, and military levers to make sure that all countries understand that as, as they take that ne next step forward, uh, it is being taken uh, in agreement, if not with the approval of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. But in Australia and New Zealand, uh, elite attack has, has focused primarily on the economic elite and uh, uh, making sure that uh, the right companies, leaders, if you will, uh, get the contracts, uh, and the contracts always require that those individuals uh, defend and advance Chinese goals in their own society. Uh, uh, I mean, it goes to the point of, of Chinese nationals very loyal to the PLA, uh, people that, that come from the intelligence structure of China mm -hmm. uh, have been elected to parliament in New Zealand. Uh, and, and you look at you know, the United States, where, where uh, the uh, approach has been primarily uh, at, a, at a very narrow elite level, focusing on the China studies community, the China analytic community, mm -hmm. both outside and inside the government, but mm -hmm. also on economic elites and political elites who uh, can be turned by their regional or local uh, economic elites. So on, on those lines, so CCP says that PLA plays a crucial role in safeguarding China's nat uh, national interests and its unification. Uh, what do you want to say about that? Well, yes. 
the party's dictatorship rests completely on the power of the PLA, or more precisely, on its control of the power of the PLA. Uh, the party uh, repeats as, you know, as ad infinitum that you know, Mao, Mao Zedong's old dicta that the party controls the gun. Mm-hmm. It goes to great lengths to impose a cadre of political commissars on all aspects of the PLA. And one, one can well imagine that it uh, infiltrates uh, uh, covert observers uh, uh, throughout the structure of the PLA in order to detect even uh, the faintest uh, uh, notes of, of variance and uh, so that it has the power mm-hmm. to decide whether to or, and how to deal with that variance. Uh, a simple uh, conversation over a beer to uh, a bullet in the back of the head. That's all options are, are there mm-hmm. for, the PL, for, the, for the party to ensure that it controls uh, the, the PLA. Mm-hmm. Um, the PLA, uh, f- from, from an optical perspective, is also essential for the party to achieve its, its global aims. Mm-hmm. The PLA uh, conveys to the world the power of the party. Uh, as on, on, in, per, in the constant parades, in uh, the, the uh, mobilization of, of all media to mm-hmm. uh, promote the power of the PLA, to promote love and admiration of the PLA throughout China. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does a very good job of that. Uh, the uh, worshiping and, and uh, cyber love of, of the PLA is one of the, the approved uh, uh, cyber activities in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, many other activities are not approved and, and are uh, expressly suppressed, denied. But for, for the party, uh, the PLA uh, not only sustains its dictatorship, but uh, from, from an optical, a propaganda, a political perspective, the PLA is also essential for the party to convince the world of, of its looming and imminent overwhelming power, its uh, ability to defeat all comers, including the United States, and to convince all other leaders in all other countries that uh, the party is to be admired and obeyed. So the CCP has a new you know, plan that, you know, so the PLA is now getting into Tibet uh, getting one member of each family uh, joining the PLA as a resistance towards, you know, uh, what they saw uh, the Indian Tibetan forces, the uh, the, uh, uh, the the special forces did uh, uh, the last time. So, uh, so how do you uh, you know equate that with PLA's uh, plan of uh, 
being a dominant threat to india in one way or the other and on the similar lines can you touch base on the tibetan youth getting into the pl i i i'm not sure if this is a a very recent development i would have expected that uh the party would have been trying to use the pla to uh uh, uh anesthetize if you will uh, tibetan culture uh in in a in a in a positive uh uh get them to join way uh since the 1960s mm-hmm. maybe it hasn't worked uh maybe they're they're uh trying new approaches uh i i expect uh, that the same has probably been tried in Xinjiang with the uh the Uyghur uh population mm-hmm. uh it probably hasn't worked they're therefore they've they've gone to the opposite route which which is to uh uh brainwash and if they can't brainwash then we suspect exterminate here you're you're pointing out a uh, a very important uh, enterprise for for the party and that is the uh, co-optation of elites around the world mm-hmm. uh uh what is happening in in tibetan culture uh is is one manner of approach uh almost almost a a feudal uh manner of approach if you will and uh this this could happen uh uh continuously uh around the world i mean imagine uh china conquering taiwan how does Ta- how is taiwan pacified well you can imagine that that a good deal of the population might be shifted to take the place of those uh in xinjiang who've been eliminated and uh camps that uh exists to uh indoctrinate brainwash the people of Xinjiang could soon be used to brainwash the people of Hong Kong then then Taiwan or consider uh Arunachal Pradesh if China should decide to invade and take over that province of India you can mm-hmm. well imagine that uh, those indian citizens or former indian citizens would be cycled uh through the same facilities in Xinjiang or or elsewhere or facilities erected in Arunachal Pradesh itself uh what i have here is uh really as important as the chart on the bottom of the page in which i try to estimate uh where the pla will be in terms of its overall power projection key power projection indices in 2030 and then in 2040 mm-hmm. i think by 2030 uh the pla will be on its way to uh, a level of 4000 nuclear warheads uh it could have up to 6 aircraft carrier battle groups mm-hmm. about 150 large transport aircraft and uh at least uh the beginning of one manned moon base now look at decade out i i think it's quite uh, comfortable to predict that uh the PLA warhead uh levels will increase to to 5000 both in terms of deployed warheads and and a reserve there will be over 10 aircraft carrier battle groups large transport aircraft will indigenous large transport aircraft could top 350 mm-hmm. and uh China could have up to 10 bases on the moon Now, moving along, let's let's look at uh conventional power projection first. Mm-hmm. Um 
with the last two aircraft carriers, China has demonstrated that it can uh, assemble and launch an aircraft carrier in uh, three years. Mm -hmm. So it's moved out of the dock and moved to the side of the dock. And of course, more work has to be done in order to be ready for commissioning. But uh, the real number here is that three years. Uh, the, the big shipyard in uh, Shanghai that's now producing the first conventional takeoff aircraft carrier uh, uh, has, has, has ba will basically build that carrier within three years. And uh, it could build two carriers at the same time if China chose to do so. And we can't forget that in Dalian, Shandong Peninsula, there, there is uh, a, another shipyard large enough to build aircraft carriers. Okay. And after, let's say, the next aircraft carrier, the next aircraft carrier will be conventionally powered, I, I estimate. But uh, after, after the fourth aircraft carrier, China will start beginning to produce uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, and all subsequent carriers may be nuclear-powered, at least the very large ones. And China uh -huh. will be unique in that it will start building all nuclear-powered carrier battle groups. Uh, we have strong indications that China is planning to build nuclear-powered underway replenishment ships, mm -hmm. as well as nuclear-powered large escort ships. Uh, this will enable China to send a carrier and its support at speeds up to 35 knots around the world. So, for example, if uh, China wanted to invade New Zealand, it could probably get to New Zealand with its nuclear-powered carriers in uh, six to ten days. Uh, uh, and uh, you know that that's probably faster if you're thinking about projecting into uh, the Indian Ocean to help defend Pakistan, help defend Iran, uh, uh, what what have you. So basically, the support uh, for all the global maritime operations for BRI, and then the overseas interest, which also help into the expeditionary. Uh, exercises that you know they are into. Uh, could you throw some light? So basically, uh, PLA's commitment to nuclear deterrence sounds mutually exclusive from the uh, global perception. Uh, yet it boasts to be collective, uh, uh, collectively exhaustive, which typically describes its dichotomy. Uh, could we talk about that? Sure. I would say that uh, since the 1970s, when foreign analysts and officials, uh, uh, government officials, have tried to approach uh, Chinese diplomats, the foreign ministry, the People's Liberation Army, to try to engage in uh, just preliminary dialogue about nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. uh, to find out what are their intentions, uh, uh, how, how, how can we avoid conflict, whatnot, all of various, various agendas of uh, the arms control community. Mm -hmm. The Chinese have proceeded 
on, on two basic tracks. First, they have been absolutely untransparent in regards to their intentions and, uh, and capabilities. They've sought uh, as much as possible to hide or really to direct uh, global opinion and, and conclusions about China's nuclear posture. They have sought to create the impression that they have a non-threatening and limited nuclear posture. They will not engage in arms races. They do not want uh, the same numbers of weapons as the, as, uh, the Americans and the Russians. Uh, they, they are not going to use nuclear weapons first, especially against uh, non-nuclear countries. If you want to talk about arms control, then it's the Americans uh, that, that need to be talking to themselves, not, not talking to the Chinese. They've avoided completely any kind of official and useful dialogue on nuclear weapons. I mean, it's been quite, quite a spectacle uh, mm -hmm. to behold over the last uh, 40 years or so. Mm -hmm. But as we move into the 2000s and the 2010s, we begin to see stirrings. Uh, mobile ICBMs, uh, the beginning of the development of multiple warheads, first on older uh, liquid fuel ICBMs. And then into the 2010s, we see much more activity. Uh, a second, and then possibly a third generation nuclear ballistic missile submarine. Second and third generation submarine launched ballistic missiles construction of thousands of kilometers of tunnels to hide mobile uh, uh, ICBMs. And then in the last six months, all bets are off. Uh, uh, liberal uh, uh, pro-arms control uh, organizations in the United States that have the money to afford commercial satellite overhead mm -hmm. find that China is now building up to about 236 silos in uh, the Western, very unpopulated desert areas of China. And uh, the candidate missile for this, these silos is called the uh, Dongfeng-41, DF-41, which is assessed to be able to carry up to 10 warheads. Now, some assess it can only carry six, but uh, the Chinese aren't going to tell us. Mm -hmm. They might demonstrate 10 warheads in a test. Uh, or, or, they, or they might not. Uh, but what we're now looking at is the possibility of China moving into about the 2025-2026 period with over 3,000 warheads. The United States deploys a little over 1,300. We assess that the Russians deploy a bit over 1,500. Okay. And uh, this, this imbalance is, is not, not the whole story. Uh, Russia and China, in my opinion, may cooperate in terms of offensive nuclear targeting. I say this largely because for the last decade, they have been engaging in increasing levels of cooperation in regards to nuclear defense. Mm -hmm. And I, I conclude that it's, it's, it's simply logical that if the Chinese and the Russians are cooperating 
in terms of nuclear defense, they've at least uh, spoken about and probably are implementing programs for nuclear offense. So by the middle of this decade, in terms of uh, the nuclear picture, the Chinese uh, could, could be undermining completely, uh, along with the Russians, the basis uh, for, for deterrence. Uh, they will be using this, this power for coercion. Uh, there have been a spate of uh, statements in Chinese state control media around the revelation of the latest uh, uh, batches of missile silos that really indicate China is, is uh, abandoning its, uh, its limited and, and defensive nuclear posture. Uh, it is already engaging in virtual nuclear terrorism against Japan after Japan uh, uh, statement made statements to the effect that it might help defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. We have a video produced on a, on a military-owned or controlled uh, webpage uh, uh, stating that China will use nuclear weapons against Japan first, use them repeatedly, and, and then end up dividing Japan into five countries. I mean, it really, uh, very tough stuff. And uh, the statements in the Global Times uh, point to the conclusion that, that China is going to use its nuclear power to coerce the United States from defending Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. That's, that's goal, that is job number one, goal number one for the new power, new nuclear and conventional power of the PLA. Again, the next factor that we can pick up is the space, right? So as we spoke about uh, 10 bases by 2050, uh, uh, 2040 on uh, uh, moon, uh, how, so basically China's counter space capabilities where PLA is developing anti-satellite capabilities, including research and um, uh, possible development of uh, directed energy weapons and satellite jammers and uh, the anti-satellite uh, missile systems that they tested uh, in uh, July 2014 as, as, as back as that. So now how, how does this come along with ELA and uh, their counter space capabilities? Okay, all, all those things you mentioned, Vipul, will continue to, to grow and get better. But the but there's but but in order for the PLA to be successful militarily in low Earth orbit, in order for its uh, dual use space station to conduct military missions, uh, the uh, combat uh, space combat platforms that you mentioned, in order for them to be successful, uh, in order to secure uh, communication satellites, in order to be able to secure navigation signals things that are all essential for victory on earth. Mm -hmm. There's something else that the Chinese have to achieve. The PLA has to achieve. And that is control over the high ground. Mm -hmm. And today the high ground is the moon. And soon after that, Mars. Um, if you control the moon and Mars, as well as the Lagrangian points, it, points of uh, equal uh, gravitational pull 
that, that, that exist around the Earth and the Moon that uh, enable you to put a, a satellite, a, a surveillance satellite perhaps, uh, and maintain, maintain it with uh, less expenditure of energy so that you can see what's going on all around. Uh, you, ha you have to be able to dominate the Moon and Mars. And uh, we see a very definite uh, Chinese effort to accomplish this goal. Um, for a long time, as, as it proceeded uh, with the, through the steps of its, of its manned uh, spaceships, the, the Shenzhou missions, uh, then the, the early small practice space stations, and then the unmanned uh, probes that have been sent to the moon, uh, China has been coy about its plans for manned moon presence and, and on the moon and, and Mars. But in the last year, there has been a kind of a waterfall of, of revelation, mm -hmm. uh, uh, data points, uh, revelations of new space launchers, uh, uh, moon landing uh, platforms, the such. It's, and it's, it's now possible to say that China plans to put people on the moon uh, probably well before 2030. It's developing a, a, uh, a, a 25 to 27 ton to the moon space launch vehicle that, that could be launched as early as 2024, 2025. And then it will follow that with a uh, 50 to 60 ton to the moon space launch vehicle expected to start testing in 2028. And then we had a revelation just uh, last November in China Daily of all places, mm -hmm. a statement by the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, which is the dominant uh, uh, space system provider for the PLA China, that uh, in the first uh, six years of the next decade, uh, China may intend to build 60 of its uh, Long March 9, 50 to 60 ton to the moon, super heavy space launch vehicles. I estimate that uh, 40 of those Long March 9s might be sufficient to build 10 moon bases. Now, they also have the option of starting to begin putting people on Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, it may take uh, more of that number of Long March 9s to start uh, building a presence on Mars. But by 2040, uh, China is going to be heavily populating the moon. And if, if we're not keeping up, if we're not investing in nuclear space propulsion so that uh, we can lower the cost and, and increase the speed of reaching the moon and Mars, then uh, China will have the most people on the moon and Mars. And with that, and, and all of that, their entire presence will be dual use, just like the current Chinese space program is dual use. Everything that can be used for a military purpose in space most likely will be used for a military purpose in space. And, oh, and this is natural. It's the People's Liberation Army that controls mm -hmm. the entire Chinese space program. There's no such thing as, as a civilian space sector in, mm -hmm. in China. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
everything that China puts into space, puts on the moon, puts on the Mars, will be with a mind to making it dual use, to uh, making sure that it has uh, military capabilities as well as everything else that uh, they intend to to ship ship to these planets. So, Professor Fisher, do you see a handshake between ISRO, India's uh, Indian Space Research Organization, and NASA doing something, you know, uh, in this regards? Well, I, I would certainly hope that uh, our dear friends in India are considering the implications here. Were India to instead go the other way? I mean, India already is very invested in Russian space technology. Uh, one can see this already in uh, your initial manned space capsule, probably uh, I would I would hasten uh, probably in your early small space station as well. An economy in which uh, just uh, the resources of asteroids, the resources of the moon and the Mars, uh, far exceeding uh, that uh, we can we can find on Earth, uh, uh, contributes uh, to the wealth of nations. The Chinese want to set up toll booths at on Mars the moon, the Lagrangian points, to determine who benefits from the space economy. Uh, uh, the challenge for the democracies, in my opinion, is to prevent this from happening, is to ensure that our sovereign governments retain sovereign choice in making sure that our people benefit from this future space economy. I think that suggests that the democracies should be allied in, in uh, purpose, strategy, and uh, expenditures. Uh, but the same can be said for uh, strategic cooperation on Earth. China wants to be the hegemon. China wants to deny freedoms. China wants to uh, uh, control all the apps on your phone so that, like in China, you have to wake up in the morning and sing the praises of uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, or else your social credit score isn't high enough for your kid to go to university. Mm -hmm. That's the future that China wants for all of us. And uh, it is really up to the democracies to prevent this from happening in the quad, uh, uh, in, in bilateral cooperation, wherever. Uh, I would certainly hope and pray that our friends in India still want to remain free and would join with the democracies to defend that freedom. So that's a, that's a very well put thought, uh, Professor Fisher. So looking, in, uh, looking at it from a more philosophical perspective, you're talking about implosions happening in the Chinese, uh, on the Chinese side itself. Uh, let me, you know, the, uh, as, as a final this thing of uh, this session, what are the possibilities of defections or fallouts within PLA with CCP? Uh, if that happens, how will it start and, you know, uh, entirely shape, shape up? Well, the Chinese Communist Party has, has made this assessment uh, very early in its history. It is a dictatorship reliant on the loyalty, unflinching loyalty of its military services, its military power. 
So from the beginning, the party has gone to the maximum degree to assure that the People's Liberation Army is loyal. Uh, it, there, there is a commissar corps that mirrors the officer corps at every level. Uh, it, it, the, the PLA is probably uh, heavily infiltrated by covert uh, uh, observers, spies. Uh, it's, it is able to detect even the most uh, minor private conversation and hold that against you to uh, you know, a conversation or a beer to a bullet in the back of the head. Uh, the party is hyper paranoid about the loyalty of the PLA and has been so throughout its history. Uh, uh, so yes, on the other hand, if the hegemony of the Chinese Communist Party is to be avoided, that cannot happen without the help, the defection, the protest, the uh, 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 betrayal of the People's Liberation Army. So yes, it is important that we have as much and varied dialogue with the PLA as possible. But I think we also have to be upfront with them. We can't coddle them. We can't be nice on the border. We have to use every opportunity to tell them that the party is going to accelerate the destruction of all people in China. It is going to risk massive nuclear holocausts around the world, and that you, private, major, corporal, colonel, PLA officer, it's your job to save us all from that. And uh, that, that we have to continue to give that message and make sure it's carried to the top, up and down their chain of command constantly. We need to inundate them. Or else the implosion can go to a full-blown or times thousand uh, of the Tiananmen Square protest the way, you know, uh, as, as we started this conversation with. Professor Fisher, thank you so much for your time uh, and your valuable inputs. Uh, we'll we'll uh, like to have you, you know, again on Diplomacy Direct uh, on a later date again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vipal. Uh, everybody, uh, please like and subscribe, and uh, that motivates us to uh, bring uh, our esteemed speakers like uh, Professor Fisher. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Bye.